Hi, I'm Channing. And I'm Elise. And this is the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We focus on feminist interpretation of scriptures and follow the LDS Come Follow Me manual as a guide for study. We understand that scriptures can be a tricky endeavor for readers, but we also believe sacred texts contain really compelling examples of loving and liberating relationships with the divine, others, and ourselves. We hope you'll join us in exploring the problems and promises of sacred text with imagination, critique, and celebration to reveal what we feel is the loving and liberating heart of scripture. While Mormonism, with its iconic floral foyer couches, is our background, we follow our faith and our God on the path of spirituality over institution and connection over condemnation. We are fellow wanderers, weavers, and doubters. If you found yourself feeling too faithful for some and not enough for others, welcome. We've saved you a seat on the soft chairs. Welcome back, everyone. This is our very first episode back for the 2023 season, and this year we are covering the New Testament. This is our fourth year of doing the podcast, and we are so, so, so thrilled. And it's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's really, really it's really wild thinking about not only our growth, but just how much our community has grown and how many different texts we've worked our way through. Mm-hmm. And as always, we will be following the schedule of the LDS Come Follow Me manual that it presents for this year's study. That means that for this episode, we're going to be covering Matthew chapters 1 and 2 and Luke chapters 1 and 2 for the dates January 2nd through the 15th. And if you're looking at your manual, you'll notice this is two weeks of study that we're covering in this episode. We decided to condense it into one single episode to give us a bit more time to recover from the holiday season and to get ready for yet another fabulous year on the podcast. It's going to be awesome. But before we begin, we just wanted to share a few thoughts. First, we just want to say over and over and over, thank you, thank you again for joining us for another year. Over the time that we've been away from the podcast, it's felt really inspiring and hopeful as we've read your messages of excitement and anticipation on social media. Thank you for continuing to support and celebrate our work. While we do this work because it feels meaningful and important to us, it is like the cherry on top or the icing on the cake to know that there are other people out there who are listening and who care about the scriptures and social justice like we do. Thank you for keeping us going, friends. We love you so much. Yes, yes, we do. And another thing that we want to say, like every other book of scripture we've covered during our time on the podcast, the New Testament is unique. So here are a few things that we think we should all know. First, scholars and historians agree that Jesus and the apostles were real-life people, and in this way, the New Testament is similar to the Doctrine and Covenants in that it documents the lives of actual people. But how reliably and accurately it does so is up for debate, but this is a common challenge shared across LDS scripture. And I'm sure, as you all know, for us on the podcast, we are far less concerned with the capital T truth or end-all, be-all historical facts of the story, and we are more concerned with the truth and meaningfulness of the lessons we can learn. Absolutely. One of the other things that feels important to note for the New Testament is that it's similar to the Hebrew Bible that we studied last year in that it's one of the most studied, critiqued, and celebrated sacred books. 
This means that people who are way smarter and way more experienced than we are have spent a lot more time than we have in these texts. So we just want to recognize <laughs> that we are definitely not uh, New Testament experts, but we are New Testament lovers. Yes, yes, that's a, that's a really good way to say it. And finally, there are so many women in the New Testament. Like seriously, it's a night and day difference from the Book of Mormon. And it may be more like the Hebrew Bible in this way where there are women everywhere we turn, which is yay. We're excited for that. And we'll try to keep up with all of them as we attempt to celebrate everyone that shows up in these stories. And one final thing, we said something similar to this at the start of the Hebrew Bible, but it's worth repeating again for this year. There is so much scholarship on this book that it will be impossible to include everything. Further, even like even on top of that, there's so much feminist scholarship on this book that even with that specific scope, we still won't be able to cover everything. We can only read so much at a time. And so that means for this season, we are choosing to do a couple of the following. One, include sources that light us up and help us feel excited and filled by studying them. Two, share our perspectives from our lived experience and finally, incorporating creativity and imagination by highlighting additional stories, songs, poems, essays, and sermons written by others and ourselves. That's right. So with all of that kind of context, we are eager and excited to dive right into this week's episode. And the manual has us jumping around the Gospels in order to read the life and ministry of Jesus in kind of like mostly a chronological order. So if we start with Luke chapter 1, Luke was one of the 12 apostles, and the gospel of Luke is written by a Gentile, which means non-Jewish person, for other Gentiles. And the Come Follow Me manual states, quote, he recorded, like Luke recorded eyewitness accounts of the events in the Savior's life, and he included even more stories involving women compared to the other gospels, end quote. Some of the key moments that we see in Luke chapter 1, we have the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth, which we'll talk about in this week's episode. We have the Annunciation, where Ga the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and tells her, or and asks her if she's ready to be <laughs> pregnant with Jesus. We have the story of Mary and Elizabeth, who are cousins, and we also have the birth of John the Baptist. Yeah, so this is a, it's a huge chapter. I think there's something like 56... No, sorry, 80 verses. 80 verses. Yeah. <laughs> it's a long chapter. Um, so there's a lot to cover, but we're really, really excited. So instead of starting with the birth of Jesus, Luke actually decides to start the whole story with a couple named Zacharias and Elizabeth. Both Zacharias and Elizabeth were descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses. And Luke is sure to tell us that they were righteous people who wanted a baby but were never able to conceive. And they were now old and conception for Elizabeth was impossible. So the story goes that one day, Zacharias was in the temple doing his priestly duties when the angel Gabriel appeared to him on the altar and said, quote, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. End quote. The angel continues to tell Zacharias that John will become a prophet and quote, make ready a people prepared for the Lord. End quote. Now, Zacharias had a really hard time believing the angel, and he asks, and he asked the angel, Whereby shall I know this? Gabriel responded to Zacharias saying, you'll know this because I'm literally telling you right now. And Gabriel essentially is like, because I had to repeat myself, quote, thou shalt be struck dumb and not be able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed because thou believest me not, end quote. Something about this part of the story really, really speaks to me. 
Since my faith transition, I sometimes have a really difficult time holding on to hope, especially when exploring collective pathways out of systemic oppression. But this story is a reminder to me to trust in miracles. I have to be totally honest. If an angel came to me one day and said, tomorrow you will completely annihilate the patriarchy, I would feel like I would react a lot like Zacharias. I'd be like, "Mm, show me how that's going to actually happen. But I also think that there's so much hope to this story. Sure, Zacharias draws the short stick. He is condemned to be silent for like the nine months that Elizabeth is pregnant, but his silence really is only temporary while he waits for the miracle to play out. The potent message I'm getting from this story is hold out for the miracle. Don't discount it just yet. Wait and see. And I also think Luke is maybe setting a precedent for what is to come in the life and ministry of Jesus. The conception of John the Baptist is the first miracle in the Gospel of Luke. It's almost as if Luke is saying, you thought this was impossible? Just wait. And I think that's a really poetic way to begin the story of Jesus. And like we're halfway through the first chapter of Luke and I'm already loving (laughs) Luke's style. style. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. We're big fans of Luke so far on the first week. Yes. And so soon after, Elizabeth conceived and, quote, hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men, end quote. And this is a really beautiful echo of a similar statement her ancestress, Rachel, made when she gave birth to Joseph in Genesis chapter 30, verse 23. The other thing that's really quite striking to us, especially coming from the Hebrew Bible and now working in the New Testament, is that we still find a God who is intimately concerned with women's bodies and women's reproductive experiences. We see similar motifs of years of infertility followed by unexpected conceptions in stories like Sarah and Rachel in Genesis and Hannah in 1 Samuel. For more commentary about this motif, you might enjoy listening to one of our episodes from last year titled, Whoops, We Ignored Women, which is about Genesis chapters 28 through 36. Yeah, absolutely. And so at this point in the story, Luke kind of moves from telling Elizabeth and Zacharias's story and then follows Gabriel as he goes to Mary, mother of Jesus. Yes. Okay. So for some, we're thinking about Mary and for some people, Mary embodies this kind of like perfection and holiness. And for others, Mary is someone who intervenes on our behalf to pray for us as sinners. For some, Mary is what's seen as like the ideal woman who is a virgin while simultaneously also a mother and really (laughs) submissive. And so whatever the case, in many faiths, Mary is a really, really big deal and rightly so. I actually wish that the LDS church cared more for her than simply recognizing her as like a passive quiet vessel to birth Jesus because that's actually not how the story goes. Yeah. So the first thing that we encounter in this narrative is what is called the Annunciation or the announcement by the angel Gabriel to the Virgin Mary that she would conceive a son by the power of the Holy Spirit and he was to be called Jesus. In the moment of the Annunciation, Gabriel visits Mary, who is clearly afraid because Gabriel says, fear not, Mary. But let's be clear, not only is an angel visiting you a potentially terrifying thing, but the message he carries is enough to scare you to death, if not scare you enough to refuse it altogether. And although Mary is scared and confused and asking, how is this even possible? What is her response? She says, quote, behold, the handmaid of the Lord, end quote. Of this moment, philosopher Richard Kearney writes, quote, 
In short, Mary chooses grace over fear. She responds to the call, trusts in the promise. She dares to imagine the impossible as possible. She says, yes, amen, end quote. And it is one of the most gracious, hospitable, and courageous acts we can think of. Many poets have written about this scene, and I'd like to share a few stanzas from a poem by Denise Levertov titled Annunciation. Levertov writes, quote, We know the scene, the room variously furnished, almost always a lectern, a book, always the tall lily. Arrived on solemn grandeur of great wings, the angelic ambassador, standing or hovering, whom she acknowledges, a guest. But we are told of meek obedience. No one mentions courage. The engendering spirit did not enter her without consent. God waited. She was free to accept or to refuse. Choice, integral to humanness. And then a a few stanzas later. The astounding ministry she was offered, to bear in her womb infinite weight and lightness, to carry in hidden, finite inwardness, nine months of eternity, to contain in slender vase of being the sum of power, in narrow flesh the sum of light, then bring to birth, push out into air, a man-child, needing, like any other, milk and love, but who was God? This was the moment no one speaks of, where she could still refuse, a breath unbreathed, spirit suspended, waiting. She did not cry, I cannot, I am not worthy, nor I have not the strength. She did not submit with gritted teeth, raging, coerced. Bravest of all humans, consent illumined her. The room filled with its light, the lily glowed in it, and the iridescent wings, consent, courage unparalleled, opened her utterly. I love this poem because I think that it frames Mary as thoughtful and who could have made a different decision. And I like that reframing of the story as opposed to Angel Gabriel showing up and Mary having no choice in you know, in her role that she had to play in this story, she acted as the main character. She was the one who was thoughtful and she was the one who gave consent to this big, um, to this big ask of the guest here. Absolutely. I agree with that. I think another thing is that the enunciation is scary because it requires that exact courage that the poem is talking about. It's the courage to say yes to the voice of God when it finds its way to us. And we really think this demand to welcome the stranger as God with a courageous readiness and a yes can be easily applied to our approaches to social justice work. For example, every day there are enunciations of some sort in our lives where people show up and say, hey, I need your help and I need you specifically to do this. Whether it's giving rides, bringing food, sharing resources like money or skills, babysitting for friends in need, providing water and warm showers, whatever it is, strangers will show up with requests. And I think that there's, and we really think there's a lot we can learn and model from Mary in her courageous response of yes, even if she doesn't completely understand how it will all come together just yet. 
being ready and willing to welcome the other is a divine act of creation and commitment. And we really think Mary embodies these really um, strong lessons of humanity, humility, and hospitality. Yeah. And there's really so much. We could spend an entire episode talking about the the Annunciation, but there are just a few more things I want to highlight before we move on. First, Mary has her own song of praise, which is often referred to as the Magnificat, which appears in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55, where she's talking to her cousin Elizabeth. Now, I would love to hear both Channing, but also our listeners. There's so much I think that we could unpack about the conversation and relationship between Mary and Elizabeth. Um, but it's an, it's within this moment that Mary has her song of praise. So I don't know, Channing, do you have any like brief, quick thoughts about the relationship between Mary and Elizabeth? Yeah, so just like a really like quick scanning and reading over it, here are a couple of things that I found really striking. First, that this is a female-dominated dialogue and narrative. It's literally all about the ladies, which is awesome. Uh, second, that it is the women's recognition of God and God's goodness and their participation and inclusion in the miracles of God well before religious leaders of the time were even aware. <laughs> like, God is doing God's work uh, outside of the religious institution without ever informing uh, the institution's leaders. And that is, like, that's super radical, I think. And finally, the other thing that I picked up from this uh piece of the text was that we have women who are giving blessings to each other like hello so there's a lot of really exciting things in the in this section of Luke 1 yes and if any of our listeners have other interpretations or other findings we would love to hear about them on Instagram or even if you send us an email absolutely in this conversation between Mary and Elizabeth Mary we really see Mary emerge as this kind of radical force for justice not only does she praise God, but she claims that because God has seen her in her, quote, low estate, like perhaps God saw her being poor and also a woman, that now all lowly, marginalized generations will be lifted up and blessed. She sees God as someone who is merciful to those who believe, but who also scatters the proud with the strength of his arm. She knows God, quote, hath put down the mighty from their seats and demoted them to a low degree. She knows God has fed the hungry and has turned the rich away empty-handed. And I love this faithful, justice-oriented look that we're getting of Mary. And I like also believing that it was her and Joseph that maybe taught Jesus many of his most radical points and took him to protests or something like that. But <laughs> if Mary that. is confident in speaking to Elizabeth like this, I can only imagine what types of social justice-oriented conversations and actions are being taken in the household with, with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And finally, I think uh, if we kind of look at how would we teach or talk about this in Sunday school, um, one of the things that we love doing is incorporating art. And there are so many wonderful depictions of the Annunciation. You might consider reading a few verses, but then spending the rest of the class showing two or three paintings and inviting conversation. Asking questions like, what do you see? What do you think is going on? How does the artist depict the angel? What is Mary's comportment? What can we learn about Mary based on the setting or the style of the room? And not only do we think this would be a great way to have a contemplative conversation about the Annunciation, but we also think it would expose folks to great art that is outside of Mormonism. For example, you might consider paintings by Harmonia Rosales, 
in her art depicts Mary and the angel Gabriel as black or paintings by Henry Owasa Tanner, Sandro Botticelli, Fra Angelico. Just Google search or Pinterest and find the pieces of art that speak to you most and share them and see what comes from that conversation. So after this time Mary and Elizabeth spend together, it's time for Elizabeth to give birth to her son. And so this happens, and when he's born, Elizabeth says his name is John. But the community pushed back on this because traditionally the child was called after a family name. But once they asked Zacharias and Zacharias confirmed that his name was John, we learn that, quote, his mouth was opened immediately and his tongue loosed and he spake and praised God, end quote. And Luke chapter one ends with Zacharias giving baby John the Baptist a blessing. It's a really beautiful chapter. And from there, we move into reading Luke 2. And Luke 2 talks uh, for the first 20 verses about uh, the narration of Jesus's birth, which is a common story that especially just coming fresh off Christmas that I'm sure we're all familiar with. Um, So instead of walking through the narration of the Christmas story, um, we kind of want to talk about a little bit of the historical context around uh, Jesus's birth and who Jesus is as a person. Yeah. So growing up, my parents used to have this really wonderful, like Kirkland brand nativity that was really ornate and all the figures were heavy, both in weight and paint and jewels. There were sheeps and shepherds, cows and crowns. And at the center, we saw this serene Mary and Joseph with their perfectly clean baby Jesus, who was not crying, but rather (laughs) he was very silent in his majesty. And really, it was a, a pretty magical display, a really magical nativity. But the real story, the biblical story of Jesus's birth is far more messy, dangerous, and subversive, and it isn't quite as clean or as majestic as this Kirkland nativity that my parents had. In fact, I like the way that the podcast Queer Theology puts it. They say, quote, the real story tells us about a badass teenage girl, someone with no power in society, someone already betrothed to a man probably many years her senior and probably without her consent. She's got brown skin and dark hair and eyes. She's living in an occupied territory. She and her family are constantly under threat from the occupiers. One never knows when they will come in and wipe out a town, or when they will decide to take what they want from women and young girls as a bit of fun. She is living on the edge, unsafe, end quote. And said differently, the Jesus of history was a brown-skinned Jewish baby whose Middle Eastern teen mom and supportive husband had had to flee due to terror and political turmoil. They were immigrants and refugees who were on the run for several years because people wanted to have them killed, especially Jesus, who posed a political threat. Definitely. And as such, the story of Jesus' birth should remind us of the sufferings of the many immigrants and refugees escaping war and persecution. And as our friend Michelle says, if the LDS Church is so concerned about the doctrine of the family, this means we need to be as equally concerned and active about fighting to keep families at the border together, too. Some things you might consider doing in this context this week is perhaps researching the current state of immigration affairs at the U.S.-Mexico border, perhaps reading the Times article titled, The Situation at the U.S.-Mexico Border Can't Be Solved Without Acknowledging Its Origins, and we will be sure to link that on our website. You can also donate to local organizations that are directly helping families at the border or in detention centers. 
Watch the documentary about the current Texas-Mexico immigration crisis titled Missing in Brooks County, which paints a portrait of how thousands die of dehydration and deadly heat exposure, all to avoid the Border Patrol internal checkpoint near Falfurrias, Texas. And finally, listen to the Pulitzer-winning podcast episode titled The Outcrowd from This American Life that discusses the personal impact of the Trump administration's Remain in Mexico policy. A bit later in Luke chapter 2, Mary and Joseph circumcise Jesus and they bring him to the temple to make a sacrifice of two doves or pigeons according to the law of Moses. While they're there, two people proclaim blessings on baby Jesus. First is Simeon, who is, quote, a just and devout man, who was told by the Holy Ghost that he, quote, should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So Simeon held baby Jesus, praised God, blessed Jesus, and prophesied to Mary. The second person that shows up to give a blessing is Anna, who is a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Aser. She was of great age and had been a widow for over 80 years, and who had served in the temple with fasting and prayers day and night. When she saw baby Jesus, she, quote, in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him, Jesus, to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem, end quote. Of this, Sabine Kruger writes in their essay titled Anna, a precursor to feminist theology, quote, Anna had something to tell, that the one she was relating to, the unreachable, the inconceivable, inexplicable, all of the sudden has become reachable and conceivable, even touchable. The distant God had come close. The unspeakable, indescribable had become a human being. Her joy, her amazement was so great that she did something very courageous, something unusual. Anna stood up and spoke. A woman in the temple dared to open her mouth and preach. Her preaching was authentic because she had lived and experienced the miracle she talked about. She didn't care whether this was wrong or right, allowed or permitted. She had something to tell and claimed her right. She didn't ask, she just spoke. Anna was among the first female preachers in New Testament history, and apparently people listened, end quote. As we'll see, Anna begins the long list of women who will testify and speak of Jesus to all those that looked for redemption, as well as plenty of people who weren't looking for anything at all. <laughs> and the final incident that appears in Luke 2 um, is where young 12-year-old Jesus teaches in the temple in Jerusalem. And verse 47 says, And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And that afterward, quote, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, end quote. Perfect. So we're going to kind of switch gears um, from Luke and move into Matthew. So the, so if you have never, ever, ever read the New Testament before, um, the Gospels are each independent eyewitness accounts to the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, and so there are a couple of different authors. So there will be sometimes some overlap, but also sometimes some significant difference. So as we move from Luke to Matthew, um, Matthew was a Jewish tax collector before Jesus called him to be an apostle. Matthew's writings focus on recording Jesus's fulfillments of prophecies in the Hebrew Bible. In Matthew chapter 1, we um, are given the lineage of Joseph, who is Jesus's mortal father. And we also get a record of Joseph's vision and visitation from the angel that confirmed the Annunciation and encouraged Joseph to still 
uh, marry Mary um, and act as father to Jesus. Most of what we want to cover in Matthew this week comes from Matthew chapter 2. So in Matthew 2, there the three wise men visit Jesus as a child in Bethlehem to offer him gifts. An angel appears to Joseph in a dream, directing him to take Mary and Jesus into Egypt, saying in verse 13, quote, For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And then in verse 15, quote, Herod sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, from two years old and under. Because of this, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus end up staying in Egypt until Herod's death, when the family then moves to the city called Nazareth. Matthew is also really careful to tell us that the, that the killing of the children in Bethlehem, Jesus' flight into and return from Egypt, and his residence in Nazareth are important, f- are important fulfillments of prophecies made by prophets that came before. Yeah, Matthew's, like, really into that. <laughs> like, making sure that, like, hey, someone said this this one time, so now the prophecy's been fulfilled. Yes. Yeah. Something that really stuck out to us um, reading through the Come Follow Me Manual's commentary about these chapters was a study point that they headlined, quote, parents can receive revelation to protect their families, end quote. The manual states... As you read about Joseph's experience in Matthew 2, think about physical and spiritual dangers that face us today. Ponder experiences when you have felt God's guidance in protecting you and your loved ones. Consider sharing these experiences with others. What can you do to receive such guidance in the future? End quote. And when I read this, I immediately, like my very first thought was that of parents that I know of LGBTQ plus children who continue to advocate for the safety, acceptance, and equality of their children within the LDS church. I also think of people like our friend Michelle Franzoni Thorley, who we mentioned earlier, and our friend Mia Jensen, who have their podcast, Love Your Lineage, through Desert Book. And these two friends use their influence to generously educate about the benefits and challenges of family history and anti-racist education in the LDS context, while advocating for truly inclusive communities. These are two examples I can think of from friends in my life that highlight individuals and groups collectively accessing personal revelation in ways that directly and positively impact their families in regards to both physical and spiritual safety. So as you consider this question that the manual asked, maybe you would want to practice expanding your awareness to include systems of oppression. You might ask questions like, how do the systems of sexism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia, capitalism, and colonization affect your family's physical and spiritual safety? How might these systems affect others? What would God's guidance look, feel, and sound like as you continue to navigate and dismantle these systems? So that really concludes the chapters that we're covering for this week, Um, but we encourage you to uh, read the chapters, really dive into your study, and see what happens for you. Yes, and just a few final closing thoughts about the podcast in general. So this year, we've decided to step away from asking for financial donations for the podcast And if you've been around for a while, you'll notice that we've changed up our approach a bit. We moved to focusing on shorter, concise episodes and are working to prioritize our mental health by taking occasional self-care breaks throughout the year. This honestly has made the podcast feel really enjoyable and sustainable for us. 
And of course, while donations are always welcome, if you are invested in continuing to support our work, what we would love and appreciate the most are heartfelt iTunes reviews and helping us by sharing the podcast with other people. So whether it's an episode that speaks to your soul or a silly social media post that makes you cheer or laugh, we would love it if you shared it with someone that you think would also enjoy it too. Yes, and speaking of iTunes reviews, we really appreciated this one that R.K. Larson recently shared. They wrote, quote, I love this podcast. It examines the actual wrestle we can have with the text. You look at context, you look at perspective and lens, and truly elevate women's voices and experiences. I'm so appreciative of the points you bring up as I prepare my gospel doctrine lessons and as I exercise faith and self-authority in my personal life. Your work is so helpful and so uplifting. Thank you. End quote. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome, but honestly, thank you instead. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Friends, we are so honored to be a part of your New Testament experience and encourage you to deepen your study on areas and topics that speak to you. Remember, we share one way, not the way, to work with and interpret the text. Be sure to include the creations of other authors, podcasters, bloggers, poets, artists, theologians, philosophers, and activists, remembering that these can expand your understanding and enhance your experience. On this note, we were especially thrilled to see that our friends Brother Jones and Brother Knox of, of the Beyond the Block podcast released an episode to kick off the New Testament year. So be sure to connect with them and their work as you explore the scriptures this year. Friends, thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the Faithful Feminist podcast. We know your time and space is sacred and we're grateful to have spent ours with you. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you showed your support by sharing the podcast, leaving us a loving rating on iTunes, or connect with us on Instagram as The Faithful Feminists. We're deeply grateful for your kindness and encouragement. We love you so, so much, and we hope to spend more time with you again soon. Bye, friends! Bye, friends!